get here and want a creative job. There are hundreds of jobs that will pay you to think, solve, make, create and design. In How Did I Get Here, I speak to entrepreneurs, leaders, trendsetters and trailblazers in some of the world's most desirable jobs and ask them, how did you get here? Today, I'm speaking with Tim Hole, who's a performance coach and founder of Cicero Coaching, Token Dad and Breathe Labs. Tim specializes in supporting individuals who work in fast-paced and fluid environments and prides himself on optimizing human performance. Tim spent over 20 years in the music industry. He worked with artists and various creative talents, not to mention being a star in his own right. There is a lot more to Tim, but I would like to leave that for you to enjoy in the interview. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Tim Hall. Tim, why don't you tell me a bit about um, where you grew up? Um, where did I grow up? I grew up in the amazing border towns between Surrey and South London, um, otherwise known as Croydon, which is probably one of the most diverse areas in the country, but it's also the area most spat upon by its closest neighbours, i.e. Surrey, that wants nothing to do with it, even though it's in the address. And London wants nothing to do with it, even though it's the most populated London borough, I think, and the largest landmass for London borough too. So yeah, I grew up in the uh, aspirational area of Croydon and um, really grew up in the borderlands that are within Croydon too. So I grew up in roads that uh, run between council estates and middle-class suburbia as well. And so I learned to ride my bike through areas where you could get your head kicked in, but also look at some lovely flower arrangements as well. Right, okay. What uh, do you do for a living now without using your job title? What I do now is optimise individuals and teams to do the best work they possibly can. And that means understanding who a person is or understanding who a team is, understanding their objectives and then looking at the landscape that surrounds it and their habits and rituals and running methods and in, in helping them and assisting them in making changes that get higher levels of effectiveness out of them. Okay, and, and what is you know, what goes on your LinkedIn profile? What is your job title? Uh, it flits from time to time, I sort of change every six weeks, but it's somewhere between founder, which is a bit of a cop-out, because, you know, <laughs> it just means you, you know, you started something. But I just call myself a performance coach, really, and it confuses people, because a lot of people know me from the music industry, so when they hear performance coach, in their head, they can see me, I don't know, doing some sort of vocal tuition, or yeah. teaching someone how to do jazz hands at the right point. But actually, it's just really about coaching people for high performance. And it's about looking for that bit where a successful person can become more successful by finding 2% of better performance value over something that they do, whether it be pitching or time management or their communication or influencing skills. You know, I'm already working with people that are quite, um, they're actually very, very capable already. So finding that bit, all those lots of little bits that can take them from being a successful person to have them become a highly successful person um, is where the real art form of coaching comes from. So if to use a sporting analogy, um, training someone from scratch how to box is something that you can learn and is something you can do from a guidebook. 
we're taking some like a 17 year old who's been boxing for six years and actually taking them to the Olympics or taking them into a major competition means really fine tuning every single element of the way they perform and not just on the day but in their run up to the day um, and really clearing space for the best possible outcomes and that's what I do as a performance coach for whether it's an individual or a team or an organisation or whatever it is is how are we going to get the absolute optimum run at a successful project or I don't know, upgrade or merger or whatever it is. And most people that come to you, do they have a, um, metaphorically, a, like a big fight coming up or, you know, so they've got a huge meeting or a big presentation or, do, or, or is it they get people coming to you to just say, I just want to be better? Or is there, you know, is there a good split, good mix yeah, of that's those? A, that's a really good question actually, because I'd actually put it in those terms before, but I think the majority of people who've come to me have experienced a, a, a prolonged period where they felt like they've been in a fight, where they felt like they've been in an aggressive laundry cycle, where they're just one of the socks and they're not sure whether or not they're actually going to make it out of the tumble dryer, you know. And then and they realise that if they don't put some proper analysis into how they're doing what they're doing, it won't end up the way they want it to end up. So yeah, so but that the third way is it's not necessarily they can see a fight coming up or they've been in one. They've been sort of experiencing something which they're not quite capable of yet, like swimming in the sea when you've only had one swimming lesson. Okay. How many... Right, two, two questions in one. How many years have you now been doing that? And prior to doing it, how many years did you know that's what you, what you wanted to do or you were trying to move? Because I know people listening don't know, but we'll come on to this in a minute. You know, you've not always done that. Yeah, I started training as a coach um, in 2010 okay. kind of time. And it had come after a two or three year period in my previous role, which is in the music industry. And I'd kind of seen that the music industry was tanking and the bit that I worked in and that I loved was becoming extinct. And that I had the opportunity in which to change what I did and stay in the music industry or to find the bit that I loved and then change the context of the industries that I did. So I guess around about 2008, I started realizing that, you know, I wanted out because I didn't want to change the nature of my work that I was doing. I wanted to actually, or actually change the genres of music that I worked on and that kind of thing. I actually wanted to focus right in on my abilities to work with an individual and help them overcome obstacles that maybe they think were insurpassable and for me to help them identify the way to get past them and to make great things. Um, you know, when I was music manager, that was about taking someone that felt like low self-esteem or low confidence and take them to a point where they were creating award-winning albums and work within a relatively short period. I'm talking 18 months to two years. And similarly now, I work across all creative industries, and similarly I'm working with people who are maybe being groomed for a promotion, maybe have struggled in the middle part of their career, whatever it is, but then I'm helping them understand what they're missing so that they can get onto that next level. And usually it happens quite fast once that identification has, has been done. So my work has stayed very similar, 
actually on the top line. It's just the context that my clients are working with has changed. Right, good. Okay, so let's go, let, we're gonna rewind back now to you cycling through Croydon and hopefully successfully not getting your head kicked in. Let's walk through now, connect, connect, connect me now from, from there to where you are now. What, what's that journey kind of look like? And if you want to stop in, we'll chunk it. So if you want to stop in first at kind of school and yeah. college and kind of what you, yeah. what you studied, how that kind of maybe like tiptoed you into the next thing and you know, what those kind of stepping stones are, so. Sure, I was a really fractious student at school. I had a perfectly good brain, but I didn't understand why I was having to learn in a prescriptive manner. And nothing that we learned at school really lit me up. And I knew there were things out there that I was really interested in. I hadn't quite identified what they were, but school made me angry. And I was an eloquent teenager. Um, my folks taught me and my sister how to debate and rationalize and research and how to have an opinion. And I had many stand-up debates with teachers where you know, all the sort of doctrines that you're taught at school, um, you're not allowed to question them. You know, the opinions are fed to you about what you're doing. And I just continually fought. And so I was turning in work that was passable. I was usually actually sort of minimum requirements. I was always capable of more than I ever delivered. But I was at war with it. I thought there was greater value for me getting good at having a fight with whatever I was being taught than just putting in work that other people wanted to um, see answers that had already been given. So I was always asking for ways in which I could do essays in a slightly different way or slightly different. And um, school really, you know, was happy to see the back of me. And I was really happy to see the back of them. But socially too, I found that, you know, all my friends had, had also become these kind of perfectly producing and predictable people. And they, you know, some of them were getting really good grades. And if you got good grades, then to a certain degree, you know, people looked up to you and, and you were worthy of respect. And obviously there's all the cool points that you try and win as well from wearing the right clothes and saying the right things and being good at whatever sport you need to be good at. But at the same time, I just, I, I resented this whole system that seemed to be making you conform all the time to something that had already come before. And I just found there was nothing interested in that, interesting and I fought my family a little bit as well. My family's really tight, really safe, really amazing, but also very predictable. And there was a lot of things that I fought to try and get change because once something's been done, I figure that the next iteration of that has to be different. Mm. Don't want to do it again. You know, happy to have your favorite food or whatever and like it the way you like it, but always want to have something about it that's slightly different. And that was just coming out of me at school. That was just kind of naturally falling out of me, like just through wanting to be different. And so it's probably the only two lessons that I really, really enjoyed were um, English literature. And I did a, like a woodwork metalwork kind of course as well. And I was really lucky that my woodwork metalwork teacher identified that I was probably had more abilities than a lot of the people in the class. And he allowed me to kind of do things that were out of the usual boundaries of what most students were allowed to do. And when he allowed me to do that, I just doubled down on the focus and concentrated and I learned things far and above my 
classmates and he just identified that I was in flow in these certain areas and I'm you know grateful to him for you know kind of um, allowing me to go off the radar and mm. do something different and that's what I was committed to um, so that was the only A I got as well I got I got across the board I got A, B, three C's a D, E and F and an X as well I got the full realm of, of grades I got just enough to get to the next level of college and literally the final day of my exams at school in my own head I told everyone I went to school with to fuck off even all my closest friends and everything and I basically didn't see pretty much any of them ever again I'm connected to a couple of them on Facebook but I was just like I, I, it was like needing to have an acid wash getting out of school I needed to get rid of everyone that I'd been with and all the teachers and everything so I went to college um, about 15 miles away from my home and I picked a course that drove me there but one of the subtexts of me going there too was I was going to have a completely fresh start with new people and also all my all, majority of people from my school all kind of went to the same sixth form college mm. and all kind of did the same sort of subjects that you were already doing at school anyway so if you'd got a good grade in German then you did an A level in German and to me it was just mind-numbingly boring so I went and studied media at um, East Surrey College in Red Hill and they had one of the first cross-media um, qualifications and this is 25 years ago but they were teaching film and video, documentary filmmaking, print journalism, DJing um, like DJing as a presenter but also DJing as, a, as an art form as well and it was a largely practical course and so I just I had the quietest summer ever having left school and then started college and just was oh, absolutely from day one like in heaven the whole bunch of creative people who were just bouncing off the walls dyeing their hair different colours like obviously there was people who started to say drugs and drinking and all that kind of culture was going on all around me but most importantly, we were being asked to do things that were just so different to school mm. that we want you to make a five minute film inspired by David Lynch using less than 30 words and things like that. And all of a sudden, all those kind of prescribed teachings got dumped in the bin. So I think I started realizing at that point that I was grateful to school, which kind of made me learn the craft of very very basic and rudimentary learning like they punch some basic maths and stuff into me but because i got through that and i managed to get some gcse's i was then able to go to the next place which really invested in me and so some of the like, apprenticeship schemes I've, I've worked on recently and stuff and there's been some young people that have been really at war with the education system there and i'm i've kind of gone look you know you just have to swallow this salt water for a little while so you can get onto the thing that's going to light you up mm. and you know you can still be doing all this stuff around the outside of it but um you know I, that that course at East Surrey was just still probably the best two years of my life i just opened up in so many new ways and I left school really short as well I was like late late starter I left school at five foot two I finished my two years at six form college at five foot nine so I've just been through this incredible physical, emotional, and educational growth spurt. And all the teachers, that we, all the lecturers we had at the college were all aspiring filmmakers and or had been very experienced people in their own right previously. And they had this real sense of they were just creating space mm. for us 
to do whatever we did. And they, they actually even said to us on the first day that every film that you make in this college is going to be rubbish because you're rubbish right now. And we know that. But what we're going to try and do is get into you the building blocks of making great media product. And so it was a real kind of amazing thing to have on the first day. Like literally the head of the course went, all student films are shit. <laughs> well, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Let's get to it kind yeah. of thing. And 10 minutes later went, you know, oh, we've just got a couple of things going on. If you want to go for a cigarette break, then that's fine. And so having it was essentially a teacher sat in front of me going, I know all the work you're going to do over the next two years is going to be shit. Go and have a cigarette. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh my God, I've just, the, the coin has really been flipped. Yeah. And we're in a different space. And so they set, they really set me up in a, in a headspace that was about completely trialing and testing anything and everything that I wanted to do. Um, so I made somewhere in the region of 15 films whilst I was at East Surrey College and wrote and learned about sound and just started getting a sense of the bit of me that really was in flow when given the opportunity. And it was somewhere between writing and directing mm. that I really found, um, you know, a real place. I'm, you know, I've got a lot of opinions bit of a know-it-all as well and you know being a director and a writer that's a great place to be mm. and so after um, after I graduated from from East Surrey I knew I wanted to carry on with filmmaking and the whole kind of system basically said unless you've got some sort of privileged background that's going to serve you straight into a great job in production or something you probably need to go and get another qualification and the university I really wanted to go to at the time was called Surrey Institute of Art and Design. No, it wasn't. It was called the West Surrey College. Then it became Surrey Institute of Art and Design when I went there. It's now the University of the College of College of Arts. And it's in Farnham and Guildford and they have a film and video course. And first of all, I was not accepted to go on their intake of the, the right sort of graduate year. And so I went back to the to East Surrey College to just do one A-level in film for a year, figuring that that would be the thin end of the wedge that would get me onto the course for the following year. But actually what happened was they were just about to start the intake year and they got a massive influx of funding and were able to double their film and video courses, so I got a call. Would I like to go and start in October of 1994? And so I said yes, and went and studied film at um, UCA for three years. And interestingly, it was a completely different atmosphere at that, that facility. And they really weren't prepared to have the amount of students that they had. And they also were teaching a lot of students that had done traditional A-levels in kind of English and maths and that kind of thing. We'd done no work on film and, or any other media platform. And I'd been not only in this incredibly creative environment at East Surrey College, but I was also rapaciously reading stuff at home and paying attention to what's So all of a sudden I realized that um, they were teaching me all the stuff I already knew. And so I had already made the decision not to move to university until I absolutely had to. And in the end, I only lived at university for about six to nine months for, in my second year and I traveled two and a half hours a day to get to and from university. One, so I could keep costs down, um, but also because similarly, I also found in the university environment 
similar sort of social battles that I was experienced at school, that people were more interested in ticking boxes and being part of a group than being genuinely experimental about finding their wings as a as a you know kind of as a pre-professional. And I found my little clique of friends that who were there to genuinely become the thing that they wanted to become, but as is often the case with us, we're often quite intransigent people and we often disappear for days at a time because we've got something to do. And so I felt no need ever to go and live at university. Like those mates are still mates of mine and they're off doing amazing things. And um, so I, I just lived down there just for the part of my course that really demanded my sort of 12 hour a day attention, which made it too difficult to commute. But I spent three years thinking about my film degree in terms of getting the Bachelor of Arts Honours mark at the end of it rather than anything else. But I did actually manage to, because uh, I specialised in writing and directing whilst there. And there was a tradition at the university that all the people who kind of got the best scores for their scripts in the writing and directing specialism would then take those scripts and those scripts would become the graduation films. And I wrote a very controversial, visceral script in that specialism and the head of the course loved it. Um, head of that module loved it and so did the head of the course. And so I kind of stumbled out of that component at college with this super A grade on this script. And the next day I had five people stood in front of me who I didn't know that well and they were the best cinematographer, the best sound person, the best lighting person, the best producer, and the best, there was a, a, like another production type person, and they were just like, we really want to make your film. And I was like, how, what, how did you know, how do you know about, you know? They were like, well, everyone's been talking about you from, from in, over the last semester, been talking about the work you've been doing on the script, and we've just read it and we think it's the best thing that we've read and we're all going to get our mark off the graduation film too so if you want a crew to make your film we'll help you make it and so I went from being this irascible kind of punk who is on the peripheries of all the cliques and then all of a sudden the sort of like super A-list of tech people I didn't really know that well just stepped forward and said let's make your movie and um, it was kind of a doc drama documentary about skinheads and I developed the, the script um, based around a monologue from a skinhead and it's called, it was called The Homeless Can Eat Shit and it was basically this horrendous, visceral, raw monologue done to camera by this really aggressive skinhead who's been disenfranchised by society and takes a swing at everyone and anyone. But I had slowly developed the script throughout an entire semester to become a sort of a drama documentary about the leader of a gang of skinheads um, starting to come to terms with the fact that he'd fallen in love and actually was thinking about a life of more consistency and maturity than he'd been living. And that's what happened over that semester. It had gone from this very angry rant to being something that was much more story-based and nuanced. And um, that's the film that we made. And that was, that was probably the only good thing that came out of my college course. But I was the top-rated... Uh, filmmaker in all the UK um, film courses of that year and I, as a consequence I headlined a whole bunch of festivals as the top rated exciting next big thing type thing 
and it was just pre-internet really and I didn't really know anything about any of this stuff no one sits you down in a Croydon and sort of goes oh by the way if you're going to make it as a filmmaker you need to go and show your film at short film festivals mm. I didn't even know short film festivals existed or what their power was or whatever I guess I still had that thing in my brain from school where you know at some point someone would tell me I had to apply for something and then I'd do it at that point yeah and so I had this film that everyone was raving about um, in my hands and um, everyone was asking me what I was going to do next and I'd shot a lot of it in Croydon around my own social groups as well around the punk community that was that was there and everyone had sort of taken ownership of me as this potentially next big thing type filmmaker and it was it was hugely intimidating like suddenly going well no one's phoning me but all the people who know about it are jumping up and down telling me that oh you're going to be amazing you're going to do all this stuff what's next and I was kind of thinking about a feature film idea that I was writing at the time but weirdly my folks I've got my I've got my degree I've got a good degree I've got two one in the end which is pretty cool and uh, though my dad's been a photographer my dad was a photographer he'd sort of as soon as I graduated just said get a job like can't, in, a, in a sort of a sense it was like I don't care what you get just get a job and I've been working like over 30 hours a week for the whole of my university studies um, in retail to keep myself afloat financially because my folks were like you can live at home but we're not going to fund anything else mm. and like studying film is expensive especially I had learned on analog film so you'd be spending hundreds and hundreds of pounds to put 10 quids worth of of film stock in a camera and then you'd have to feed everyone and then you'd have to buy makeup and you'd have to buy all the sorts of props and stuff it's really expensive so I had to work over 30 hours a week but, but you know that wasn't my full time job it wasn't supposed to be my career and so my dad just said just get a job so I just scrabbled around and got myself a running job for a TV company that specialised in corporate content for car manufacturers they looked after Land Rover, Rover, um, what else did they do? BMW was a big one for them. And so they made all these kind of corporate videos about BMWs that were shown at various conferences or if they had something go wrong in a gearbox, they'd make a video about how to fix it and it would get sent around every single Volvo dealership yeah. so that they could see how to make it. And so I kind of stumbled out of universities, great film, everyone was excited about, thinking about a feature film script stumbled into a full-time job as a runner which as anyone who's been a runner will tell you is 12 plus hours a day and it's all consuming it's a very physical job even though it's not particularly intellectually um, demanding it is very physically demanding and so I stumbled into this position and I was in this this company that made this really moribund series of videos but for a high ticket price I mean they had they had, they had leading edge Technology and the company was one of the first companies to go to digital in the UK. But everyone was angry at each other about their position, about their work. They were all bitter and resentful people. And I was spent less than a couple of months there, just and I just thought, wow, is this it? Is this my career in TV? Just being surrounded by angry, bitter, resentful people. And everyone I spoke to, you know, I'd end up talking to them about my film and all that, and they were interested, and I showed loads of people in the production company. And no one ever did anything. They all went, yeah, that's really, really good. You know, nice one, Tim. Can I have a cup of tea, please? And so I was just like, 
what, what do you have to do to get a break as a filmmaker? And I, I don't know how what to do about this. And um, I carried on and carried on just, you know, doing a good job as a runner. And then I became post-production assistant, stroke librarian, and was, you know, sort of got a bit of a promotion and, and carried on trying to get noticed. And started coming to the realization that no one gave a shit about anyone else, especially not me. I was I didn't have anyone that they could leverage against. So I didn't have a rich dad who was going to pay for something that they could get involved in or something like that. So just kind of really quickly came to the realization that no one was going to save me. I was going to save me. I didn't have the money to make a film that I wanted to make. And so I really started questioning where I was going to be in my career. And at that point, a record producer rented a room in the building that I worked in, and he was sort of part of the same media conglomerate that I was working for. And he rented out our boardroom for an in, like, indeterminable period. Our company needed some cash flow, and he had some, and was finishing an album with a, an artist from South Korea. And he pitched up with all of his gear, and at the time I was sort of in a punk band we'd never played a gig but we were kind of regularly rehearsing and stuff and met this guy and he'd produced some bands that I not only knew but kind of liked from heavy metal worlds so he produced bands like Thin Lizzy and Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and some like titans of heavy rock and we became mates and I was sharing him the music I was listening to at the time and he was really digging it and interested in me and he, was, and he was sort of started asking me quite quickly, like, what are you doing here? I said, well, I, I need a job. And he said, well, but why here? Why are you coming to work in this place? And he could see that everyone that worked there was kind of an out, you know, they, they weren't where they wanted to be. And they were angry and resentful. And it was like, what are you doing? And I, and I told him my theory on where I was going and just sort of saying that I was looking for another opportunity. He said, you know what? He said, like you should just shelve filmmaking for a while, do something else. So you should work in music, like you've got a really good ear for music, you're in a band. Um, I'm kind of looking for an assistant because I'm about to go on tour and I need someone to help. Why don't you come work for me? And um, I'll teach you how to make records. We're, I've got a load of travel arranged for the next 18 months. Come with me, I'll teach you how to make albums. Maybe you can help me out with some filming and stuff at the same time but come and learn what I do and you'll suddenly see that there is a whole area of creativity and media out there where people actually love what they do and he was right you know I, I said yes and we sort of had a slow ramping period of about three months where I kind of faded out what I was doing for the TV company and faded in what I was doing for him and we were both technically under the same umbrella company so it kind of was all cool I was switching over to his component and um, so he'd be making this record with this Korean artist who as I found out was like the South Korean David Bowie it was like 10 albums into his career and was super really super experimental always genre shifting and um, they were going back to South Korea to tour the new album that they'd written and recorded together and I was scheduled to go too and I was going to be uh, uh, the producer's name was Chris Tangarides, and I was going to be his roadie, his assistant, and he was going to teach me everything he did. But my main job was to make sure his guitars were where they were supposed to be, and that, you know, if arrangements needed to be made to get him in a cab or whatever, I'd be the guy that would be the point person to sort all that sort of stuff out, which was cool. But 
couple of weeks before we went, we were finishing the album in Metropolis Studios in Chiswick, and I was kind of having a bit of a bob around in the studio to one of the tunes, and the lead singer called Crom said to me, Tim, do you want to be in the band? And I was like, what? And he said, that, you know, we need energy in the band, and I've been smoking 30 a day for the last 10 years, and I'm 32 years old, and I can't even go up a flight of steps without getting out of breath at the moment. I don't have time to get in shape for the tour. So all I'm gonna be able to do on stage is sing. I can't perform, like I can't run about, I can't move, I'll be out of breath. But you could come and do a lot of that. Um, and at the same time, there are lots of call and response vocals, and there's bits of keyboards and samplers and stuff that need to be firing. I can teach you how to do all that stuff. And so you can come and you can do all your stuff for Chris as you're supposed to be doing, but also be a part of the band and play out. So I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I've only had my new job for like a few weeks, but yeah, I'll join your band. I mean, what, what's the worst that can happen kind of thing? And I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about South Korean music industry. I was 22 years old and completely green on that sort of stuff. And at the same time, the internet was so young, there wasn't much you could type into the internet to find anything out about anything, to be honest, but let alone the South Korean music scene. So I had no opinion about Krom and his career and what he meant to culture and that kind of thing. We got there off the plane and 200 schoolgirls met us off the plane and ran at us as we left the terminal building and got into two limousines and I was like I've just come from South Croydon, directly from South Croydon where I lived with my parents and had a clapped out Ford Fiesta as my car with like 100,000 miles on the clock. Got on a plane to South Korea which was one of my, only my second transatlantic flight. Got off the plane and had 200 schoolgirls running across my head. Uh, wow, this is pretty intense. And, uh, <laughs> you were what, 22? I was 22. Right. And right. I didn't know what my importance was in any of it either, because I didn't perform on the record that we were going out there to perform. As far as I knew, I was just a hired gun to go and run about on stage and do, do a bit of yelling into a microphone. And as it appeared, you know, as I became more and more known by the fans who were rapaciously in all of Crom's business, wanting to know exactly everything that was going on with his new album and what was going on with it. I became a character within the band very, very quickly, and then became also a focal point of the band, because as it turned out, I was the first person in South Korean music industry history to perform without a shirt on, for example. And I used to just run around shirtless is what I did with a punk band and it was kind of just felt natural to me but that was super unusual and was newsworthy and also I was filmed at one stage we were doing a rehearsal in um, Seoul Olympic Stadium and the rehearsal was filmed by the six o'clock news and we used to do like over an hour solid rehearsal before a show and the show was two and a half hours long so we had serious calorie burn and dehydration on, on a show day and we were into the rehearsal being filmed by this big camera crew and I was halfway through a chorus and I was I threw an arm up in the air and my arm came out of its socket which was something that happened quite regularly due to a, an old injury I've got in my arm 
So I dislocated my arm in the middle of a chorus, but and I relocated the arm back into the socket and carried on singing in the chorus. And this was captured by several cameras. And you could see on the footage, like me flush white with pain as this arm comes out of the socket and then put it back in, you can see it clunk back into place. And then finishing on singing. And this sort of was shown at six o'clock on the night of the show. So this amazing sort of message went out to all the fans, like this English guy from the band has just done this like super crazy move. Um, ah, intentionally dislocated his shoulder because he's so nuts. <laughs> exactly. And so these other things, all of a sudden, the next town we went to, I was on the front page of the local newspaper, which had some interesting effects with our crew, you know, because I was just like a hired hand mm. to really help out and create, you know, Crom had asked me just to be a point of interest. At no point had he asked for me to have the front cover of the local newspaper over him. And so that created some weirdness around the crew. All of a sudden, the young kid, who was basically the, the scrope guy with not much talent, was getting more attention and was more interesting. And I started realizing that in that zone, as, the, as a musician and any kind of artist, you can't pick your audience. You can think you know who you're performing for and have a, an idea of your ideal audience, but really your audience will pick you. And so if you make yourself publicly available to them, that's what's going to happen. And so where I tear out to the front of the stage, bellowing into a microphone, giving it my whole heart and soul, I guess in my head, I would be faced with, with young men who look like me, who were all feeling the same thing and we'd be in the moment together. I didn't expect to see 500 schoolgirls still in their school uniform, losing their minds over anything that anyone on stage did, to be honest. But at the same time, you suddenly go, wow, who are you? And what is it that you're seeing in this? Because I didn't know I was projecting something that was going to be that. And you realise you don't have control of it. Um, so yeah, so I ended up um, being a very minor celebrity in South Korea <laughs> for a short amount of time. I turned 23 in South Korea. My manager at the time was a guy that had signed Bon Jovi in the States. And he was giving me a very fast learning experience of how to handle this experience of suddenly being thrust into the limelight. And it took me the whole time I was there to really get my head around it and realize my responsibility to all the people who came up to the backstage door saying, oh, you're a wonderful inspiration and da, 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 and realizing that if someone was having a really positive experience over something that you're doing, to help them have ownership of that and to let that lead on to a positive mood for them. And at the start of it, I was just kind of like, almost like explaining to people, no, 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 I'm, I'm just the guy from South London. I just happen to be good at running around and good at shouting down a microphone. You know, I'm not the person you think I am, whatever. But actually, every time I did that, I was actually just taking something away from someone. And actually the opportunity was to realize that someone was inspired and to ask them what the action was gonna be that they were gonna take whether it's going to be that we're going to start putting a band together or whether we're going to write that book that they're thinking about writing or whatever it was. And so I guess I started feeling the roots of the kind of work that I do now by accident mm. in that zone, that people will come to you and speak to you about their life if they see something that you're doing that they think is impressive and cool and whatever. 
and the the bit that can happen in between the really amazing explosive moment can happen when you ask that person what they can possibly do with this feeling that they're getting and if this ape from South London being me has inspired you to come over and say hello and whatever what else could you do what else are you capable of that you're not going after and that's I guess been a fundamental in every conversation that I've had since then throughout my music career and as a coach too of finding out what is that thing that that person isn't doing because they feel scared because they feel they're going to fail because they feel they're going to wreck their relationship with their boss or that their family is going to look down on them or that kind of thing find out where that explosion is going to be and then help them find the power and the strength and the, the resource to go after it wow all right <laughs> is that enough christ uh yeah more than enough i just like try to think yeah let's just end it there <laughs> no no i've got more questions i'm just letting all of that digest yeah um that only takes me up to 23 by the way <laughs> oh, no. i went up to 23 and then uh, you know i'm 42 now so there's a lot of stuff that's happened we'll do a part two <laughs> um so all right so you were starting to like informally experiment i suppose with coaching performance yeah. coaching what was the transition into doing that formally from being in that band talking to people backstage and kind of having inspired them saying with that feeling what you're going to go and do to you know now that's your linkedin title that's what you do yeah monday to friday or saturday to saturday i imagine sometimes what was that sort of transition what did you what did you do i guess first of all i didn't know that was a job and i didn't know it was going to be my job I just knew it was something that I could identify in people. Um, but I think moreover, I always considered, and probably most people will identify this, is that you think that your career has to be something of a substance which is quantifiable. Like we know that an accountant goes to college, goes to university, does lots and lots of qualifications in doing compliance and all that kind of thing, and can say they're an accountant. We know the boundaries of what an accountant does. And I'd come through the media environment and I kind of got that a cameraman learns how to, or a camera person learns how to use a camera, learns how to use a camera for documentary, for film, learns how to use a, doc, a camera in sports circumstances, learns how to use a camera underwater. And you keep learning this craft and it goes there. And so I always guess felt that I always had to have a craft that sat as a context for everything that I did. So in the music industry, you know, after I'd had this experience in South Korea, I carried on as a musician for a while, but really I started focusing on always something to do with, first of all, it was engineering and producing, then it became about project management. So all the components of making a record, like what are all the different people and what do they do? Then about releasing records, who are the parties that play a part in releasing records? And I went and put myself within those teams. So I had a job title that was quantifiable and had always come before. And I went to work for Warner Brothers and then Universal as what's known as an A&R coordinator, which is kind of like what a producer does in film. You're kind of the person that calls together all the, all the personnel and the contracts and the budgets and that kind of thing and make it all happen. Um, but it's not a terribly creative role. It's about sort of administration of putting a project together and I realised that to get out of that I was going to have to give myself a promotion really and the natural promotion was to become an artist and producer manager so I left the record company environment and became a manager for people that made records uh, both as an artist or a record producer and engineer and I specialised in finding people from 
weird subcultural types of music and genres of music and people have not been identified yet like people are super young still in the sort of the rotation of their apprenticeship like the person that I had been and sort of go where is the spark of your creativity let is let's go and fan the flames of it and find someone to fund you doing a really cool thing with a band or you know or a band doing something with a producer and so that became like a, the contextual anchor that I had behind what the top level of my work was which was finding these people who were lacking in confidence lacking in self-esteem thinking there was a huge amount of barriers standing in front of them and, and doing what they needed to do and me being able to demonstrate to them that the barriers were all in their mind and that I could help clear them away um, so in getting to what I'm doing now I then I had to go through a development process of understanding that you, I didn't have to represent someone exclusively to be able to provide this service to them and realising there were a bunch of bands and things that we worked with that I sat down with them and gave them coaching sessions when we were developing them and I didn't get paid directly for it but they still are friends with me on Facebook and wherever and will message me and still ask me for advice and input and for steerage on whatever they're doing even though they've got managers and publishers and things like that so mm. I started realising there was this whole kind of like maybe that's a job kind of thing and then I had a couple of people ask me if I would coach them and this word coaching uh, like sort of popped out yeah. and in my own mind coaches were people that told you which way to point your sofa and what joysticks to buy there weren't anything to do with functional business you know creativity and, and that kind of thing so I um I rejected that title. I was like, "What are you? What? I'm not going to tell you, you know, where to buy your joysticks." And um, my wife then pointed out to me that I had a major stigma, prejudice against the term coaching, and probably based on ignorance. And I should maybe go and find out what coaching is. And so, ten minutes later, I emerged from Google, realizing that coaching was not something that was at the reserve for poor rich housewives. It was something that people do when they really, really, really want to go and be successful at something and they know that they need to ascend to a series of lessons um, and development points and don't feel like they can do it on their own. Um, and it was absolutely perfect. I did an induction course for a, a group called the Coaching Company, the Coaching Academy, the Coaching Academy. They do a free two-day coaching induction and I went and did that, and just from the within the first hour, I was hooked, and I was like, "Yeah, this is absolutely where I should be. I should leave all those contexts behind me, and really focus on the fine art of helping another person do something amazing." And just that whole process of removing my own narrative from um, from my work and placing another person's narrative completely within my work frame mm. was just an absolutely brilliant innovation to experience at that time when I was realising I needed to leave the music industry. Hmm. I've got, these notes are building up so I'm going to have to circle round at the end no, that's cool. with more questions. Um, so you sort of did that two day course and then I suppose you already had a, let's put it crassly, like a roster of clients almost that you were kind of working with and what it just snowballed from there I assume. Yeah so at that point I had some in the region of I think I had something like 23 people on my music management roster 
So a lot of those were musicians, somewhere in the region of 15 of them were musicians and the rest were engineers and producers. And I realised that the music industry was shrinking at a really rapid rate. And we were, like most music managers, had quite a big churn of clients. So, you know, you'll sign a record producer. If your relationship isn't bearing any fruits, you might part company with that producer or the producer might part company with you. And also, when people get successful in the music industry, they quite often shift managers quite regularly, looking for new ways of doing things and whatever. So um, they say the only truth about being a, ma a music manager is that you will be fired. And it's absolutely true, you will be fired. And so I kind of had this, this dialogue with my wife who'd been running a music company with me for 10 years and I said look I don't think I'm going to replace any client who leaves and if we if we decide to not work with anyone before anymore I'm not going to replace them on the roster so we're going to allow our roster to shrink and over the course of the next few years it slowly shrunk down and shrunk down and shrunk down and when I got down to about four clients I then realized I was spending more time coaching people than I was as a music manager and um, that was a really interesting experience to suddenly have my wife actually tell me uh, wow 60% of our income in the last year has been from coaching not from management and it was reflected in the hours I was putting in too and so that point it then became a question of accelerating out of the music industry not just fading out mm. and so the final few clients kind of went quite quickly and then we finally closed the door on the music management company, weirdly at the end of 2016. But actually, I had been full-time as a coach pretty much since 2014. So four years later, I've now already had an established business in 2014, an established profile. And now in 2018, that's when we do podcasts for people on creativity. And uh, featuring as keynoters on diversity events and running workshops for CEOs and MDs across all sorts of creative industries. And uh, I guess I keep bringing this context back and realizing that sometimes the responsibility of what you're doing is the products and services that you can create from everything that you learn too. So I'm still bringing context back to myself, but it's based on designing new things that augment the kind of struggles and obstacles that my clients go through. So I really take personal ownership of my clients' problems and really go and sort of walk away into a dark cave, kind of think, you know, if you could rewrite the rules of how this situation works, how would that look? Mm. And spend a lot of time, what I call Rubik's cubing, different permutations of how that could look and experimenting with it too. So now I'm sort of developing workshop products and I've developed a collaboration process that allows large groups of people to really um, invest in diversity and inclusion. Um, and these things have come as a consequence of me listening to more clients, listening to their, their obstacles and the challenges in their work environments, realising they're repeated, not only in, our, in the creative industries, across lots of industries, and realising well, there's an opportunity there to innovate. Maybe not just me helping individuals and small teams, but actually me helping, you know, huge ways of doing business, mm. huge ways of people communicating, um, rather than just having personal epiphanies. How can I help an entire organisation have an epiphany together at the same time about the same subject? And that's uh, Breathe Labs.
So that's where Breathe Labs comes from, really. And so I wanted to create this scenario where we were really investing in human intelligence. And we have a scenario where artificial intelligence is, on the, is coming towards our workplace. It's already massively installed in a lot of big companies. And no one is looking at the ways in which we use human intelligence and working out new ways to upgrade that so that it can coexist with artificial intelligence in a far more um, friction-free way than it does right now. And right now, we're still debating whether or not guys and girls can work together. Yes, we can. Whether or not white folks can work with black folks. Yes, we can. But the truth is that we need help. We need help to understand each other. We need help to be able to platform each other and get the best out of each other. And those are where all the innovations are, the structures that we do everything by, so that we can make sure that we can work with the widest cross-section of types of people, with types of experience and ages and ethnicities and religious foundations and orientations, but get to productivity immediately. Not have to play a game of, hey, I'm cool, you're cool, let's pretend that we're all cool, whereas actually we're still coming to our relationships with fear mm. and resentment and working out whether or not the person sat in front of us is going to provide the next leapfrogging opportunity to get onto the next place. But how can you and I set about solving this task right now using every piece of our expertise and our capability? And if we have a bunch of people from different age groups and whatever into the room too, how can we bring them into our conversation like really quickly and put it to action? And so I think there's a massive innovation there and that's where Brief Labs sits. We are looking at human intelligence systems and working out new ways to work. You were you were saying something just before we started recording that I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, well, you said a few things that kind of me all kind of linked. Being that um, capitalism, businesses, organisations on the surface kind of probably want to be seen to care about diversity but ultimately aren't going to be motivated by anything really other than profit yeah um but actually not seriously addressing diversity in a way that actually moves the dial actually does something could actually be the um the collapse of a lot of businesses because i'm sort of finishing your sentence for you but be cool for you to speak a bit more about it and more eloquently than me because lack of diversity or lack of um, systems around diversity that help it to flourish positively means that meeting rooms and brainstorms are filled with people in your words sort of sitting on their hands not saying things they should say not making contributions they should make not saying that great idea that they've had because you know they're in an environment where they feel uncomfortable and actually whilst that's happening and human intelligence is being stifled by companies that aren't really making diversity benefit them, uh, artificial intelligence is absolutely surging and, and sooner or later, if humans continue to be stifled in the business process and artificial intelligence continues to absolutely boom, that lots of businesses are gonna suffer because human intelligence is basically capped and stifled by the very system that it's kind of living within. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's um. There's a really interesting um, lady in San Francisco called Dr. Joanne Pransky, who 
calls herself the first robotic psychiatrist. And um, I corresponded with her a couple of years ago over a, a few things, there's some cool stuff that I thought she would, she'd said online and was working on. And I was asking her about really what the core of her work is. She said, look, this is what I'm working on. If we as human beings can't get on straight from the word go and really find ways to work friction-free, how are we going to look when we're working alongside working alongside machines and robots? What is the abuses going to be of robots? If we are allowing bullying language, if we're allowing people to really kind of um, leverage each other, steamroll over each other in the workplace right now, when we bring a robot into this scenario, how disgusting is some of our behaviour going to become? Mm. And that's, I think there's a, Google recently put out a campaign called Make Google Do. Mm. And it's um, a top line for how to speak to, basically, their search engine protocols and all sorts of things, but also Alexa. It's about make Alexa do it. And that whole, that whole terminology is, that's worse than slave culture in a way, because you're sort of, you're bringing it back into the language where you can make someone do something. Mm. And we got rid of that language, didn't we? We got rid of making people do things. Um, I think we've found good frameworks in which we can incentivize and respectfully request people to do things, just about. But I think the next evolution is creating an environment in which people want to give. Mm. And that's a very, very different scenario. And when I was talking to Joanne, it was just became really interesting to me that she found this really clean and distilled problem that we've got as human beings right now. And then if you look elsewhere around industry where people are looking at the development of the workplace, there are three conversations going on right now, which all are looking for the same end result, but in different ways. One of them is diversity, empowerment and inclusion. Like people are looking for a workplace that respectfully includes people from every different type of identifier you can possibly imagine. And not only that, allows that person to take advantage of themselves in the workplace and bring that whole authentic side into work. Then there is a whole bunch of people out there who want more innovation in the workplace. They want people to share ideas that maybe they're withholding and not talking about enough. Um, and then there is another group of people who are looking to erode the way hierarchy systems create um, dysfunction um, in organisations and sort of not only don't get the best out of people, but also stymie people and bully the soul. And so all of these, diff these three different areas are all looking at the same thing. They're looking at us doing more progressive work being respected and actually creating an environment that we want to go to. But none of them are talking to each other. Mm. And so I realized that there was this, there was, there was missing links between all of these. So I've been going between different groups of people from innovation, from reinventing work, and from diversity and empowerment, and realizing that you know they use slightly different language and they talk about different problems, but they're actually looking for the same end result. And that's great profits from the companies. And so you start realizing also that if a company thinks that they will make greater profits by having a diverse group of people working there, they will accelerate towards it at great speed. The trouble is right now, no one can prove that. 
McKinsey report of 2015, which is used largely as the anchor for a lot of people's work on diversity and inclusion, and that suggests that it knows where the business case is, um, it simply hasn't been proved. And so no one can say, this team over here was more successful over this team over here because they had some people from Eastern Europe and because they had some people that were from um, Ghana. Um, and this team were only white folks from London and therefore they, they were less successful. They will never be able to prove that. But what they will be able to prove is on an individual basis is every individual in your building free and able to contribute at the level that they feel they should be able to contribute to. If they do feel like that's there, then that organisation can say, we are optimising our people to the top line. We are finding ways to coach them and develop them and educate them so that we can actually stand up straight in front of room people say, the majority of our organisation all feel like they have been extended to their greatest potential and are giving therefore. So we can attribute our success to a whole organisation of people who feel like they want to come here, who feel like they want to contribute, who feel like the organisation wants their contribution. And I think that's a fascinating place to get to. Because if you can get to that place with your organisation, the role of AI makes total sense. Because what you'll be looking for is, you, what you'll have is an organisation of amazing human beings and all of their complexity and their idiosyncrasies and their uniqueness will be able to exist as it is to inform the top line of our products and services. And artificial intelligence can backfill all the predictable tasks that were existing. Um, the alternative is we stay divided, we stay dysfunctional, and therefore the teams we have which are monocultured, monogendered often as well, um, and you will be outperformed by a computer. And those sorts of people will end up being told what to do by machines. That's the flip of it. There's quite a famous quote from Andy Stanley that says that leaders who don't listen will find themselves with organisations of people who have got nothing to say. And I actually think that quote needs to be upgraded. It needs to be leaders who don't listen will end up being told what to do by a computer. Heavy. But true, ultimately. Um, yeah, because if you are being stymied in a, an environment where you're supposed to be being creative and you're supposed to be being lateral and oblique, then you are effectively being predictable, aren't you? And then it's, it's a matter of... Self-censoring. Months or years before you are, yeah, you are effectively going to be replaced by a by a computer or by a piece of code. Yeah. I watched. Um, I don't know if you've seen it recently. Tao on Netflix, which is a movie which, um, to your point about you know not not really being very far away from slavery, it's the same thing. It's about this guy kind of codes, you know, like Hal from Space Odyssey. But I managed to probably why they called it Tao because it. <laughs> basically rhymes but he kind of codes this computer um, who and the, the computer is addicted to learning um, and it just wants to keep learning and it shows you kind of again when when, when artificial intelligence really kicks off but if we see it as a, a, a where it's master he um, the, the male protagonist in the movie basically whenever the computer makes a mistake, punishes it by destroying some of its memory and by just taking away things that it's learned. And the female in the film, that 
instead kind of realizes that this thing loves to learn and so basically says well you know if you do x for me i'll teach you y and you kind of go yeah that's a much better way to do it isn't it you know whereas i think yeah we are at risk at the moment of kind of being like well it's a computer it's not feelings so we just make it do whatever we want um it's like well i don't know because that's one way to do it but mm. um so i find that very very interesting um and those two things kind of coexisting also not just interesting kind of inevitable so um what's your ambition with breathe then um ambition with breathe ambition with breathe is to take it into as many organizations that will have it i want to inserting something i breathe into a, into an existing culture will take help like organizations i'm taking it into now they need me to help them really understand how it works and the effect it's going to have on them as a holistic business and all the functions that they've got. And so that's what we do. We train the trainer so that they can run breed sessions in their own environment. We help them sort of turn into it slowly so that they can see all their cultures shifting alongside it. Um, but the process, once you've learned how to use it, is simple enough that I'm hoping that people who learn it in an organisation will then take it and go and run their PTA group using it or plan a summer fair with it or plan their wedding using it. And so they will be able, people will be able to do team-based activities, um, always utilising the best amount of wisdom that surrounds it. Um, so I'm hoping there'll be sort of like a catch fire moment where corporations are ultimately paying me to get me to train them how to use it. At the same time, behind closed doors, people are just taking ownership of it for free. There's a movement where people just realise that it's the way in which they can get things informed and get things done without having to trample on people or give yourself the title of the head of this or the head of that. Um, that's my ambition for it, is that we change the way that human beings work together. I, and when I was designing it, I was thinking, like, what would happen if there was like a group of soldiers stranded on the side of a mountain, their helicopter gets shot out of the sky and they've got, you know, the enemy coming after them. They could sit down and use breathe to determine their next move, mm. making sure that all the intelligence that was remaining in their group had been taken into account. Um, and a bunch of old ladies who had decided to make some jam for the WI tent at the summer fair, they could use it too. And that started getting me really excited, mm. realizing that it was a very special structure that would just liberate whatever content you brought to it. And it didn't matter whether or not it was about guns and bombs or jam and cakes, mm. that it would be as effective for people who wanted to do things in a new way. Very cool. Look, I realize you're um, a bit tight for time, so I'm going to do two very quick wrap up questions. Cool. One, someone young listening to this who thinks, Tim, that all sounds really, really cool. Higher education costs a lot more money now. Three bullet points to get them pointed towards what you do now. Um, first of all, you need to be aware of craft. Everything that I've ever done, there's always been something anchoring the work. I've not just gone off and called myself a filmmaker. I went and learned how to make films. I didn't go off and just make myself 
um, you know, call myself a musician. I had been in a band before. Make sure that there is an anchor for the decision that you're making. Where's the evidence to say that? The idea that you've got, you want to do, have you proved it? Like, let's just say you're going to study philosophy at university. Are you genuinely interested in philosophy or does it just sound fun and interesting for you? Have you been reading Nietzsche and Jung in the run-up to you making that decision? And if not, why not? Go and do some craft before you make a big decision. But go somewhere where you can take yourself into the red zone. Like somewhere that you're going to be a bit scared and you're not sure whether you can get through it. That's going to be a place where you get to learn. We are constantly using fear to stop ourselves getting involved in things that we think we might fail at. Get involved in something that you genuinely think that you've got a 20% chance of failing at it, but an 80% chance of winning through. There's going to be enough of a learning in there, because probably the gap between what you know and what you don't know is bigger than 20%. Have that sense in there. So one, craft, make sure there's evidence for what you want to do. Secondarily, take yourself out of your comfort zone, which is a really cliched comment. But if you've done the craft question, actually think about where can I go and really learn a lot from the organisation I might work for or the qualification I'm going to do. And uh, the third thing, um, hmm, interesting. I haven't really settled my mind on what the third thing would be. And so I have to only really go from my own experience. And that is make yourself available to other people. Talk about who you are, talk about what you're thinking about doing with other people. You'll be surprised about what people have recognised in you that maybe you haven't recognised in yourself. So if you're not sure, or even if you are sure, just talk about it openly and honestly with people. Don't feel like you've got to broadcast that you already know what you're doing and that you know what the finished article of you looks like. Be prepared to sit in front of people and say, I don't know. I saw a brilliant keynote by Jermaine Greer a year or so ago at the Conway Hall in London, and she had the ability to sit in front of an audience talking about a subject matter, and she said, I've not finalised my point of view on this, but I'm going to talk you through it anyway. And it was, um, it was a talk on um, exogenesis, which is where babies can be not only conceived, but also grown outside of the human body. And so Jermaine Greer, she wasn't sure whether or not that was disenfranchising women or empowering women. And she just she said, I'm not sure. So I'm going to talk to you about all the different viewpoints of it right now, and you're welcome to chime in. So she invited comments from the floor too. And I thought, that's a, what a fantastic point of view. She's asking. She's asking the world, what do you think? I'm not going to say I know everything. What do you think? And that's what we do with Breathe. We ask people. We're not sure what to do with this thing, but you guys in a room should be able to inform the next step of this. What do you think? So that's what we do, just ask. Very cool. And then uh, just last one, then we'll wrap up. The, uh, just because it's sometimes nice to do this, the teacher um, in school that you felt kind of recognized that sort of special something in you, do you remember what they were called? Um, there was my CDT teacher at school, Mr. Shirrett, who was the person who recognised I had more to give than the school curriculum that could really extend. And then at college, Andy Burtwistle, um, who's now, I think, teaching film at Canterbury University, or was it when I last looked. And he was the person who just kind of let me know you were on your own, but you were also free to explore. Mm. Very good. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you. 
thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. It's yeah, been great. It's been brilliant. I think there's a lot to take away for people listening. So, Tim, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.